Well, we are wrapping up our sermon series for the summer. We've been looking for wisdom in all the right places, and I so appreciate the group that's been coming Wednesday night. We had our last Wednesday last week, looked at the Song of Songs. There were some people missing, that's okay. Maybe they were shy about the reading material. I don't know. Um, I made Ian, I was gonna make Ian read all of the scripture just to embarrass him as an 18 year old. But we had a great time and I learned a lot from that group and so I so appreciate your input. We've been looking at Job and learning wisdom in our suffering. We've been looking at Psalms and learning wisdom in our worship and Proverbs, learning wisdom in our decisions, and Ecclesiastes, learning wisdom in our purpose, and even the Song of Songs, learning wisdom in our passions and desires. All of this has to do with the wisdom of God. And it's a group, a, a selection of books in the Bible that are sometimes maybe not ignored, but maybe not understood or uh, connected with as much. But there's one theme, especially in Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. One theme, we've talked about it already, I'm going to talk about it again. The theme is this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that has stuck with me through this whole time. What on earth does that mean? I think we have to be careful here, right? When we start talking about fear, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Spiders, snakes, I know fire, oh, a lot of bigger fears I'm sure that you have. We were camping um, this last couple of weeks and our first campsite in, in uh, the West Kootenays, we were in the woods, in the middle of the night, we we're in a tent by the way, in the middle of the night, we hear this horrific noise and it's the noise of a larger animal attempting to kill a smaller animal and the smaller animal didn't like it. So they were making all kinds of noise. You could hear them going all around the woods, all around us. And our dog, who's now 80 pounds and fairly large, was shivering and shaking in between us. No help. Berkeley will be no help in the case of panic of an animal attack. And uh, then somebody else, somewhere in the campground, uh, poked his head out of his tent, I guess, and yelled, hey! And it worked. Suddenly the noise stopped. I don't know if the uh, predator was successful or it just scared him off. The rest of the night, we were, what, afraid. We had a little bit of fear. So then when we got to the Okanagan, we were very happy in that part of the Okanagan, there were no large predators, but there was a big sign up that said, rattlesnakes in campground. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Dealing with all of our fears in one camping uh, trip. So we, we have to be careful when we talk about the fear of the Lord that we don't automatically grab our own paranoias and attribute it to this phrase because we could go really in the wrong direction, couldn't we? What's the old expression? We're gonna put the fear of God into him, right? Uh, I think I heard that from my dad once or twice, you know, coming to put the fear of God into me. Uh, there's an old uh, preacher's tale, I've told it many times. I have to tell it again because I chuckle every time, you do too, and uh, it kind of illustrates the point, and it's of course about Johnny. Johnny is a notorious little boy who cannot be tamed. Not like any of the Sheldrakes or anything like that at all, but he's a notorious little Johnny, and his mom does not know what to do with him. And so his mom decides what Johnny needs is the fear of God put into him. So mom takes Johnny down to the preacher, sets Johnny in the preacher's office and goes home. And the preacher understands the assignment. So the preacher says to Johnny, Johnny, where is God? And 
Johnny doesn't say anything, but he's a little surprised. And so the preacher sees that he's maybe making a connection. He says again, Johnny, where is God? At this point, Johnny starts to sweat a little and grip the chair a little harder. And third time, the preacher thumps the Bible because he's really getting through to this boy, getting the fear of God into him. Johnny, where is God? And Johnny jumps up, runs home to his mom, right into the kitchen and says, Mom, Mom, they've lost God down to the church and they're blaming it on me. <laughs> See, you chuckle. You chuckle. It's a good one, isn't it? Yeah. So, is that what we're talking about, though? When we talk about the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom, I don't know if it is. I don't know if we're meant to sit here terrified of God. That doesn't seem to ring true with gospel. It doesn't seem to ring true with Romans 8 and 1. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So, so what is this fear? How do we understand the fear? There is a real danger of misunderstanding this because I think sometimes the church has used fear as a motivator. Have you ever been in a church where we've used fear as a motivator? Uh, I remember growing up in the Plymouth Brethren Assemblies and no one sat in the front row, not because they were shy Baptists, but because the, the preacher would just hellfire and brimstone, like just the preaching, he would get soaked in the front row just from the, the, the phlegm coming from him. So uh, that's a disgusting image, isn't it? So, but there was a lot of hellfire and brimstone, right? It was a lot of like scare you into the kingdom to use fear and especially the fear of hell. What happens if we use the fear of hell too much to try and get people to believe? Well, what happens is we have a whole bunch of believers that just see salvation as a kind of fire insurance from hell, and then they go about their lives doing whatever the hell they want, right? And that's a problem because that's not what it means to follow Jesus. And so we have to be careful. What's our motivation for believing? And when the church resorts to fear and guilt and shame, that's not the gospel, I don't think. It's not what we see in Jesus. And so we have to get this right. We have to get this right, this idea of the fear of God and what it means. One more example I'll, I'll share of why we have to get this right. And it comes from a, a song and an artist that might not be in your playlist. The artist's title is Death Cab for Cutie. I, I didn't make it up, and it's not my fault. But uh, they have the song called I Will Follow You Into the Dark. And the one redeeming quality of the song is it mentions Calgary. And uh, you can go home and listen to it if you want, just for that reason. Um, but in the song, is, there's kind of a hopelessness, a little bit. The hopelessness is that the, the author, the singer, uh, the narrator, doesn't have any sense of hope beyond the grave. Beyond the grave is just darkness. And, and he's become comfortable with that, so much so that he's willing to follow his friend into the dark. <laughs> but there's nothing beyond that. There's no hope. There's no hope of heaven. There's nothing beyond the grave for this particular writer. And we have to ask the question, why? why? Why did you come to this point? And how did you come to this point of being so cynical about life after death? The reason for that is actually in the song. Here's some of the lyrics. In Catholic school, as vicious as Roman rule, I got my knuckles bruised by a lady in black. And I held my tongue as she told me, son, son, fear is the heart of love. So I never went back. It's, I think it's profound. 
And maybe it's a profound reason why many people have turned away from the church because we've taught this somehow, maybe not explicitly, but we've lived it out. Fear is actually at the heart of love. And so we're so afraid of going to hell that we're going to believe in Jesus. We want to steer away from that. That's why I think we need in this collection of wisdom literature in the Old Testament, where we have Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and we have Job, all talking about the fear of the Lord. We also have the Song of Songs, who does not mention fear at all. In fact, it only mentions love and passion and desire. And we see something of God's heart for us in all of this. So how do we understand fear? How do we understand the fear of the Lord? Here's three things I've been learning about the fear of the Lord. And I hope that you uh, uh, think about this, reflect on this, because this is the key to wisdom. That's what we're told. So we've got to figure it out. Here's what I've been learning. First of all, fear of the Lord is a reverence for God's power. I think we do have to establish that. That's what Job learned. Job started complaining about God. He was upset at God. He was questioning God. And suddenly God speaks. And God just says, where were you when I threw the stars into the heavens? He's basically saying, Job, you have no idea. You have no idea what I'm capable of. You have no idea of my knowledge. You just need to be quiet sometimes because you don't understand, right? And so I think we have to have this reverence for God's power. I love horses. I don't ride them often because I'm not good at it, but I love them. I love the way they look. I even love the way they smell. Anybody like the smell of horses? I don't know what it is. Yes, thank you. Um, and when we were in Nelson, BC, uh, our girls were involved in 4-H club and it was a horse program. So we got to be around horses a lot. But I have to admit, I deeply respect the horse's power. <laughs> have you ever just stood up really close to a horse and you realize this animal does not have to give me permission to be on its back. Like, I don't know how that first started. Who saw a horse for the first time and said, I think it would be a good idea to ride that thing. It probably did not go well. They would have to be very determined to make that work because they're so powerful. I once saw a horse in a barn grab a guy with his mouth and, um, and grab him just by the back of his shirt and fling him across the barn, just like you're chucking a bag of garbage. And, and you're just amazed. And so when we are around horses, what do we need to do? We need to respect their power. We'll multiply that by infinity and beyond, right? I, I think we have to have a healthy reverence for God's power. This is what Jesus says to a group of people. He says, don't fear the person that can kill the body. You should probably be more afraid of the, of the one who can kill the body and soul. <laughs> God's power is much greater than anything we'll encounter. That's part of it. That's part of the understanding of the fear of the Lord. It's true. Second thing I'm learning, though, is part of the fear of the Lord is cultivating a respect for God's authority. Now, it's different. Power and authority is a little bit different. Power is God's general competence, not only to create the world, but to sustain it. But his authority is very personal. This is the question of what right does God have to direct my life? We don't like that in our culture. We don't want anyone to direct our lives. When we talk about freedom, sometimes it's pretty close to anarchy if we really break it down, isn't it? We want this kind of no one tells me what to do. 
We were in Peachland, uh, where I grew up in the Okanagan, uh, this last week, and visiting with my mom. And uh, we went down to, to Peachland, to, if you've been there, down to the uh, waterfront area. And uh, we witnessed two stately older ladies almost throw down with one another. I was, Christy and I were front row seats to almost a fist fight between these two older ladies. And it was kind of fascinating and terrifying to watch at the same time. And the problem was this, one of the older ladies said, you don't need your sweater. And the other one said, everyone's different. And the other one said, well, you're just gonna be carrying it around all the time. It was 38 degrees. And the, the, other, one, <laughs> the other one said, well, don't tell me what to do. And then they went back and forth till finally the one just said to them, mind your own business. <laughs> and we're like, wow, we're gonna stick around for a little while and see where this goes. <laughs> but sometimes I wonder if we kind of feel that with God. God has these instructions for our lives, this, this will of his. And sometimes I wonder, even if we don't verbalize it, maybe we live it out. God, mind your own business. I don't recognize your authority in my life. And so part of the fear of God is recognizing that God has authority in our lives. And that means obedience. So whenever we find phrases like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we also find something about obedience. But we shouldn't be afraid of obeying God. Why not? Because the greatest command that God has is what? Love. Jesus even said it. If you love me, keep my commandments. And what's the greatest commandment? Love one another. So we have to get that right. But um, the fear of the Lord has to do with a respect for God's authority in my life. Okay, here's a third thing I'm learning. The fear of the Lord also has to do with confidence in God's love for us. Confidence in God's love for us. That all of this power, all of this authority is for us and not against us. And once we come to that place, then we can have this confidence in God. So here's my statement about the fear of God. Fear of God is a reverent respect for God's power coupled together with love and confidence. Once we begin to live that out, then we're on the path to wisdom. Then we're ready to receive wisdom. This is the starting point if we're going to be wise. Wise in our decision-making that we make good moral choices. Uh, wise as we go about the earth, realizing that God has woven wisdom throughout all of creation and that we can actually access it if we are in the fear of the Lord. And wisdom, and this is the passage that Noah read for us, wisdom that is ultimately found where? In Jesus. This is the revelation of the gospel. Up till now in the Old Testament, we've been talking about wisdom. We've been kind of looking at wisdom as a good thing to have. We've been longing for wisdom, the song of songs, stirring up that desire for wisdom. And now wisdom is in the flesh. That's the revelation of the gospel. That wisdom, when it comes to God's wisdom, is not some philosophy, it's not some, some strange idea, it's not a set of principles even, it's found in a person the person of Jesus Christ. Christ is the power of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. So in the passage that Noah read for us, um, Paul begins that passage by kind of making free use of a couple of uh, verses from Isaiah. And those verses show 
how wisdom, human wisdom, is bound to fail. That no matter how knowledgeable we are, no matter how smart we are, no matter how wise we are, we will never even stumble our way back to God on our own. That's what he, that, uh, Paul is saying in this passage. And so he, he cites the undeniable fact that for all its wisdom in the world, the world has never found God on its own. It was still blindly seeking him. However, God sent wisdom to us in the person of Jesus. That's Paul's great point. That's the point of the gospel, that Jesus is the only way, is the only wisdom of God. So that sounds good to us because I think we've heard it before, right? We've heard the gospel. We've been in church. We kind of know the story a little bit. We've been through a Christmas or two. So we understand that. But Paul says there's a problem. There's an obstacle to belief. There's a stumbling block. This seems like such great good news. Everybody should believe it. But not everybody does. And Paul recognizes that. And the stumbling block back then, and even to this day, I think, is the cross. It's the cross. It's the suffering of Jesus is the stumbling block to many for belief. For the Jews, the Jews knew that cursed is anyone who hangs on the tree. And so there's no way that this person, Jesus, who died on a cross, could possibly be the wisdom of God. That seems foolishness to them. And to the Greeks, a God who suffers is a contradiction in terms. Because if a God is impacted by an outside force, then that outside force must be greater than the God. And so for the Greeks and their philosophies, you can't have a God who is moved by anything external to himself. And so for the Greeks, a suffering God is a contradiction in terms. But even to the followers of Jesus, Many of the actions, many of the teachings of Jesus seemed like foolishness, absolute foolishness. They seemed complete, completely foolish to them. I can only imagine sometimes disciples taking Jesus aside and trying to either protect him. They did this from time to time or try and correct him. And maybe they said things like, you know, Jesus, it's not wise that you let that woman touch your feet with all that smelly oil. <laughs> That's just not a wise thing to do, Jesus. I just want to protect you and steer you in the right direction. It didn't seem wise to them. Or maybe they said, Jesus, you know, it's not so wise that you spend all your time eating dinner with these sinners. I mean, these outcasts, you're going to get a bad reputation. Maybe, you know, throw a couple of parties for the elite and for those that have some money. Some money would be nice. You know, you could just see them. It's not wise, Jesus, to spend all your time with these sinners. Jesus, it's, it's not wise to touch the leper. It's not wise to touch a dead person even or be near them. I mean, you, you could become contaminated. You could become unholy. It's not wise. Or, or Jesus, it's, it's not wise to engage these women in theological conversations. Can you imagine what might happen if they start like teaching and leading worship and praying in the church? I mean, that would be terrible. Don't engage the women. Jesus, it's not wise. Or it's not wise to challenge the authorities. Do you know what they can do to you? It's not wise to speak truth to power, Jesus, because, because that can get you in a lot of trouble. And ultimately, uh, Peter even said this, Jesus, it's not wise to go to Jerusalem at this time. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Because the wisdom of God is beyond what we can imagine. And there's some actions of Jesus that in our mind, 
doesn't seem wise and so it becomes a stumbling block. So it looked like the Christian message really had little chance of thriving against the background of Jewish and Greek life or even among his own disciples. But as Paul says, what looks like God's foolishness is wiser than men's wisdom and what looks like God's weakness is stronger than men's strength. The strongest point of Jesus' ministry was when he was dying on the cross. That's when he showed us the ultimate sacrifice in his love. That's, the, that's when he was strongest, is when he appeared to be weakest. So, being wise according to the gospel is not about what you know, it's about who you know. You ever hear that when you're trying to apply for a job? You know, it's not about what you know, it's about who you know. It's true about being wise in terms of the gospel. It's not about what we know. It's about who we know because wisdom is found in Jesus. And as we follow Jesus, we too will become wise. It's not about being smart enough to be wise. It's not about having enough knowledge to be wise. It's about knowing Jesus. That's what we need to do. The fear of the Lord also has to do with trust. And as we trust in Jesus, in our suffering, in our sorrow, in our great times, in our good times, in our blessed times, when we learn to trust in Jesus, then we grow in wisdom. Let me just end with this statement. As it says in Paul, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. Do you know that power today? Do you know that wisdom in Christ? Do you know Jesus? And are we following after him? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you didn't wait, us, wait for us just to keep stumbling around hoping that we might find you. But that in fact, you sent your son. You took the initiative. Thank you that he is your wisdom and your power and that we can know you because we know him. Help us to know him more. Help us to love Jesus greater. Help us to live out that love in the world around us. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen.